1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast series on New Books Network. My name is Huiying, and I'm here today as one of the hosts on the channel. Today, it is our greatest pleasure to welcome Dr. Stephen Miles with his another new book, Opportunity in Crisis, that came out with Harvard University Press in 2021. Welcome, Steve.
0: Hi, Huiying. Very nice to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: No, thank you for agreeing to share with, sharing with everyone about your new book. So um, before we jump into the detailed content of the book, would you like to say a few words about yourself, your background, anything you would like to share about you and the book?
0: Sure. Well, I'll just uh, do a shout out to my great teachers. Uh, growing up in Dallas, Texas with parents, And ancestors in business or in law does not seem like I should have gone on to become a professional historian of Qing China, uh, living and working in Hong Kong as I am. But in stages, a great history teacher in a public high school, a great East Asian history teacher in college, and a great China historian, and then a great Qing China historian as advisors in graduate school steered me in this direction, and so here I am.
1: That's wonderful. I'm so glad <laughs> you are you're here and with uh, this fourth new book. Um so how did you come to write this book on cantonese migrants in late 19th century China?
0: Well, um before I answer perhaps I should say a little something about um what I mean by cantonese, right? So um for those uh, people who may not be too familiar with uh southern China, so Cantonese refers both to a dialect group, people who speak the Cantonese dialect, and to kind of a regional cohort, right? So, um, narrowly speaking, uh, people from uh, the Pearl River Delta in Guangdong Province in far southern China, uh, around the main city of Guangzhou, or Canton, hence the name in English, Cantonese. So the reason I ended up writing on Cantonese migrants in the late 19th century is kind of by happenstance. Uh, most of my work so far has in some ways been about migration. Uh, my dissertation, uh, what eventually became my first book, The Sea of Learning, uh, evolved from what originally was an intellectual history to a social and cultural history centered on the question of who embraced a Confucian academy established in Guangzhou in the 1820s. And at the time, Guangzhou was seen as a very wealthy city, uh, but also as a cultural backwater in far southern China. So in other words, it was sort of like Dallas, Texas, uh, when I was born there in the 1960s. Wealthy, but not necessarily a lot of culture, at least not from northerners' points of view. So this new academy, the Sea of Learning Hall, was established by an official from central China, and its purpose was to introduce what he saw as more advanced forms of scholarship and literature than popular in central China. So the question that I asked then was who embraced this academy and who did not? And my answer is that generally speaking, men from in-migrating socially ascendant families based in the city of Guangzhou embraced the new academy, whereas men from families in the Pearl River Delta based outside the city Families that claimed a descent from 12th century migrants that settled in the Delta, did not embrace the academy, and in some cases even built reputations by explicitly rejecting the city and what all that living in the city entailed. So one such community in the Delta hinterland was Zheozhang, which I described at the time as a township that was kind of closed off to in-migration compared to the city, which was open to in-migration. So in the process of reading primary sources like uh, gazetteers and genealogies and such for the first project, it kept running across references to Cantonese from places like Zhoujiang, who for various reasons spent time upriver along the West River Basin, which connects Pearl River Delta in Guangdong to upriver areas in the mountainous inland neighboring province to the west, Guangxi. Right? And so looking at these materials, Jojong no longer seems like a closed community, but rather it appears to be an emigrant community right? that's very much connected to migration to upriver areas. So following these people and looking at what they did and tracing their connections, uh, both upriver and downriver in the Pearl River Delta, became the basis for two books, Upriver Journeys and Opportunity in crisis. So Upriver Journeys um, takes the entire West River Basin as its unit of analysis, and it covers an earlier period, roughly 1570 to 1850. Uh, Opportunity in crisis is more tightly focused on Guangxi during the 19th century, uh, a time when uh, Cantonese migrants also began to target overseas destinations. So uh, by focusing on the 19th century, Uh, I'm able to sort of compare internal migration and external migration, or at least talk about internal migration in the context of this growing overseas Chinese diaspora, but more specifically, Cantonese diaspora.
1: Thank you so much. I think um, uh, it is so wonderful that you provide a very brief synopsis of the three, not building blocks, (laughs) but uh, or background information about the books that came before the current one, Opportunity in Crisis. So as we move on to the specific content, I think the main thread of the questions would be what kinds of crisis or what and what kinds of opportunities that we are talking about for these Cantonese migrants and state in late Qin China?
0: Well, so I was just going to say that um, so by the beginning of the 19th century, Cantonese who were active upriver had basically uh, come to dominate riverine commerce. Right. So the West River between Guangdong and Guangxi is one of the major arteries of trade in China at the time. Uh, and Cantonese really dominated this riverine trade uh, in some ways, kind of economically colonizing the frontier province of Guangxi, right? So um, it's a great source of wealth for the Pearl River Delta, sort of extracting rice and mountain products and then um, selling manufactured goods and uh, providing financial services in the form of pawn chops. Um, so really. Uh, you could think of Guangxi, this frontier province, is almost kind of a, a place that's economically colonized by the Cantonese, right? And it supports a very vibrant, highly commercialized, relatively wealthy economy in the Pearl River Delta. So this is kind of the existing opportunities um, uh, that began to face crisis in the 19th century.
1: I will just to follow up on what you were talking about, if we may call them, quote unquote, colonizers of the Guangxi basin. Uh, so who are these Cantonese migrants and what kinds of, of opportunities that they were seeking and for what purposes, as you discussed in elaborate details throughout chapter one and two, the part one of your book?
0: So uh, we can talk a little bit more about um, the ways in which migration was gendered um, in a moment. But in short, uh, most of these migrants were male migrants, right? Uh, They were also highly mobile, right? So uh, they're not necessarily moving one time to one particular place upriver and staying there. Uh, They're uh, often very active in multiple locales, both upriver and downriver. Uh, And even if they move to one particular locale upriver and stay there. They often maintain family and broader social connections with um, communities in the, the Pearl River Delta homeland, right? Or emigrant communities, right? So um, they are, this is migration is part of a family strategy for socioeconomic maintenance or advancement. So um, they are moving upriver to um, either simply make ends meet or to uh, make a fortune, ideally, right? So this is primarily, again, an economic strategy, right? And most uh, migrants are in some ways uh, involved in commerce, either directly or indirectly, right? So they might be uh, uh, major shippers. They might be uh, simply working as uh, hired laborers in one of the many river ports. So uh, through migration, primarily Cantonese men uh, who are highly geographically mobile are kind of creating what we can think of as kind of a a Cantonese riverine diaspora connecting uh, basically river ports uh, between the delta and upriver areas into Guangxi and even um, beyond Guangxi across the imperial border into northern Vietnam.
1: Yes, so as you were also mentioned about the gendered aspect, and we're talk, also talking about family strategy. So, um, have you throughout the primary sources you have encountered, have you seen mentioning of any female mobility or immobility? So, when the male, as you're talking about male Cantonese um, workers or other migrants, they move. Did their spouse or family members, female family members, stay behind or move together, or what? What about this other um, gender? in this story. Right. So,
0: um, as some other scholars have pointed out, right, uh, I find that um, Chinese migration in this period, the 19th century, was uh, a highly gendered practice, right? So uh, as I said, most migrants were males. Um, Many of them, even those kind of in the middling parts of the socioeconomic ladder, uh, and even some at the lower end, uh, did have family connections. Uh, in the Delta, right? Even if it's uh, a mother or a sister, uh, many of them also were married, right? Um, And so they had uh, Cantonese primary wives in the Delta. And the ideal, and certainly in, in, I think, a majority of cases, uh, the primary Cantonese wife in the Delta would kind of anchor this trans-regional family in the Delta, right? Maintaining the family home, Uh, maintaining the household economy uh, in the Delta, while the male migrant is uh, trying to earn a living upstream and then sending some of his income back downstream as remittances, right? Uh, Many of these male migrants um, struck up economic and sexual relationships with women upriver. And we have to keep in mind that uh, these upriver areas in Guangxi uh, the people are of a different ethnicity, right? There's um, Today, they would be categorized uh, by such categories as the Zhuang or the Yao. Um, and uh, so they're not ethnically Han Chinese, as we would refer to it today. And certainly, even if they are Han Chinese, they may not be uh, Cantonese. In other words, speakers of the Cantonese dialect from families based in the Pearl River Delta, right? So these upriver um, sexual and economic alliances in kind of the um, Chinese patriarchal order would be conceived of as concubines or secondary wives, right? So the sort of the, the uh, stereotypical pattern is a highly mobile Cantonese man with a primary wife in the Delta and uh, a concubine upriver who often is um, uh, a non-Chinese and certainly uh, non-Cantonese, and often uh, in male Cantonese writings is seen as kind of this um, both alluring and threatening uh, presence, right? You could sort of, you know, threaten to drain the family's wealth, or at least the, the Pearl River Delta-based family's wealth. So, uh, in short, most migrants are men, but I do see the movement of women in some cases, right? And I addressed... I spent more time addressing this in upriver journeys than I did in opportunity in crisis. So uh, we do see some female migrants involved in family migration. So maybe a daughter, maybe a wife going upriver. Uh, we do see um, some uh, women uh, who are praised for traveling upriver to retrieve uh, the corpse or the coffin of a dead male relative, right? Uh, maybe Maybe a husband, right? Uh, we see the ancestral tablets of deceased uh, wives or mothers being uh, moved upriver uh, after uh, male migrants and their offspring decide to settle permanently upriver. And we do see the both upriver and downriver movement of women as concubines or secondary wives, right? So it's, um, in my sources, it's quite common for uh, uh, these male migrants to acquire wives upstream, and then eventually they might bring these wives back downstream um, where they become, basically they're categorized as concubines because there's already a primary wife based in the Delta. Likewise, I do see some uh, wealthy uh, merchants who have settled upstream. Uh, They have either a Cantonese primary wife or maybe a primary wife from upstream, uh, and then they become very wealthy. Uh, And they have multiple concubines and they might acquire some upriver concubines and then maybe some downriver concubines who then uh, might anchor the family in the Delta or they might be brought up. I I don't have any solid evidence for this, but my sense is that uh, these very wealthy uh, merchant migrants acquiring a concubine from uh, the wealthy town of Foshan in the Pearl River Delta, for example, might be almost kind of a status symbol, right, if one could afford to do this. So I do see some examples of women moving upstream and downstream, but they're always kind of um, the minor part of the story, at least in the sources. The major part of the story is kind of immobile women, uh, ideally one upstream and one downstream between which the male migrant moves.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, as your talk, uh, uh, more questions <laughs> came up, but I think I should stick to the main content of the book. And uh, the first chapter or uh, first part, chapter one and two kind of introduced the players, so who they are, what kind of opportunities they were seeking. And then the uh, second part, Covering chapter three, four, five, I think uh, are filled with extraordinary, interesting stories of uh, these different encounters or different um, opportunities that they realized or they missed. So, in this second part, you discussed various ways of Cantonese migrants to the Upper West River Basin succeeding in bureaucracy, commerce, and civil examination system. You also talk about how the reassertion and expansion of Cantonese interests in significant ways complement the Qing state's interests. So here, um, because of the time limit, what would you say is the most extraordinary aspect to the story here, and why?
0: Sure. So I'm going to... To set the background for this, right, the broader uh, context is that uh, in the mid-19th century, the 1850s, early 1860s, there are uh, civil wars between the Qing state and various um, rebel regimes. The most famous would be the Taiping, uh, which originated in Guangxi in the early 1850s, but then very soon left Guangxi and marched into central China. And an awful lot has been written about the Taipings, not much has been written about what happened in Guangxi and the West River Basin after the Taipings left. Uh, what did happen, in short, is uh, more civil war, uh, this time between uh, a triad regime, right? It's for this brotherhood or secret society known as the Triads um, that uh, set up its capital in central Guangxi. Um, and uh, the people who set up this regime were largely Cantonese migrants from the Cantonese underclass right? And the people who ended up suppressing this regime were um, uh, people both from other provinces and Cantonese, right? So, Cantonese were both involved in the rebellions, in the rebel regimes, and in the Qing suppression of the rebel regimes, right? So, um, the three chapters that you mentioned in part two look at ways in which uh, Cantonese, who Uh, were involved in the suppression of the rebel regimes and the reconstruction of the Qing order uh, benefited in various ways, right? Uh, And um, one of my main arguments is that uh, the Qing state in Guangxi was reconstituted um, in large part uh, through the efforts of Cantonese, right? So in other words, the reassertion of Qing order was in many ways a Cantonese project. And Cantonese migrants benefited in various ways, right? So uh, benefited by um, uh, developing commerce and Cantonese commerce largely funded Qing administration of Guangxi um, by um, winning civil service examination degrees upriver. Uh, and these are degrees that are uh, ideally intended to nurture uh, elites in Guangxi, but... and. They ended up nurturing migrant elites. Uh, But what I find most um, extraordinary is the way that Cantonese, uh, in the last few decades of the 19th century, uh, really colonized the lower echelons of the Qing administration in Guangxi. And this relates to uh, a principle of governance uh, during the Qing known as, in English as the law of avoidance. And that basically says that if you come from a given province, you cannot serve as an official in that province. And the idea behind this is to uh, avoid kind of um, officials who are serving their own uh, family or private uh, interests, right? Um, so Cantonese could not serve in their home province of Guangdong, right? Um, but it seems like for the first two centuries of the Qing dynasty, so you know, the mid-17th century to the mid-19th century, Cantonese um, were not really allowed or encouraged to serve in the neighboring province of Guangxi either, right? So um, the number, the proportion of officials in Guangxi who are natives of Guangdong province is very small, um, smaller than we would expect, right, uh, for the first two centuries of Qin But then suddenly in the late 19th century, um, a disproportionately large number of lower-level officials in Guangxi are natives of Guangdong, right? So people serving as um, in counties and prefectures below the level of county magistrate and prefects. So and these are the people who are basically um, organizing the new commercial tax, the Legion tax, which is collected from Cantonese migrants <laughs> primarily, right? Um, administering examinations, um, uh, processing legal matters, et cetera. Right? So there's this growing kind of uh, bureaucracy of expectant officials, officials assigned to Guangxi waiting for particular posts, uh, and people serving at these lower-level administrative positions. Uh, and so in the last three decades of the 19th century, something like one quarter of all of these lower-level official posts are held by people from Guangdong. Right? So that's far more than theoretically they should have uh, helped. Right? And the reason behind this seems to be the new policy of being able to purchase particular offices. Right? So my, my colleague here at HKUST, Lawrence Jong, has a new book out on office purchase. Um, and one new aspect of office purchase that became an option in the 1860s was purchasing the province to which one would be assigned as an expectant Official, right? Uh, so you can now say, you know, for that extra money, I'm going to be assigned to set to X province, right? And most people from Guangdong uh, who did this chose to be assigned to Guangxi, presumably because there's, you know, in many ways, Guangxi is kind of part of a larger Cantonese riverine commercial world, right? Um, it's very easy to travel between Guangxi and Guangdong, for example. Right. So uh, most Cantonese then who purchase assignment to a particular province are purchasing assignments to Guangxi and they really come to dominate the lower level, in Qing administration of the province. Right. So this is a way in which um, the reassertion of Qing order uh, in the southwestern province of uh, Guangxi was very much kind of uh, an expansion of uh, a Cantonese diaspora. Upriver as well.
1: Thank you so much for not just uh, talking about the most extraordinary aspect, but a little more um, information about those, uh, how they uh, became dominated to uh, one quarter or two thirds? Okay, one, <laughs> uh, one quarter. One quarter. Mm-hmm. Oh, one quarter of uh, late Qing uh, administration administrative posts in Guangxi um, and as we're talking about late Qing moving towards the end um, the final two chapters, part three uh, kind of covered this last two decades from late 19th century to early 20th century and what you're presenting um, I, I feel is either counterintuitive or countering the main historical trend uh, of what was happening in uh, to Qing China, that whereas the imperial state of Qing China was collapsing because of multiple internal and external challenges. Um, but technical, technological and institutional innovations enhanced rather than diminished the influence of Cantonese migrants in off-river locales. So how did this happen? Yeah, so... Um In some
0: ways, if we look at the Qing state, in many ways it seems to be faltering in the late 19th century. But if we shift focus and look at this growing Cantonese diaspora, uh, we see not a diminishing or a faltering, but rather an expansive growth, right? The Cantonese diaspora in the late 19th century is expanding dramatically, both overseas, uh, a subject that is fairly well studied, but also upriver. uh, Uh, something that has not been well-studied, right? So um, if we take a diasporic perspective or a perspective focused on one regional cohort, we see expansion, we see growth in the late 19th century rather than uh, decline, right? So what I find is that um, in many ways across the mid-19th century divide, um, we see some continuity in the sense that Um, before the mid-19th century, Cantonese commercial power uh, influence in the West River Basin seemed to be growing. And uh, despite the disruption of the mid-19th century wars, these networks continue to expand um, after the mid-century wars and even into the early 20th century, right? Um, So uh, in some ways, what I find resonates with a concept that uh, Stephen Halsey talks about, and and that's that um, uh, China had what he calls a non-porous economy. In other words, um, even in the context of Euro-American imperialism in the 19th century treaty ports, um, Euro-American merchants still had trouble penetrating the Chinese market because there are already very well-established Chinese commercial networks, right? And this certainly seems to be the case in the West River Basin. Right, Um, so you have new products um, such as cassia bark, right? Um, Basically, cinnamon um, that has a major market um, in uh, North America, in Europe. uh, That that grows tremendously in the mid 19th century, Um, and this is linked to the growing treaty port trade, the growing uh, Euro-American presence in the treaty ports. But Cantonese merchants really controlled the extraction and the internal shipment of bark. The main producing areas of bark were in Guangxi, right? Um, so even as the treaty ports are developed from the 1840s on, even as steam navigation uh, changes West River commerce in the late 19th century, um, even as uh, telegraphs uh, speed up communication uh, in the late 19th century, uh, these pre-existing Cantonese commercial networks benefit from it uh, and embrace it. So in many ways, these institutional and technological innovations really um, expand um, Cantonese commercial networks. And one of the ways that we can, we don't have a lot of good statistics um, for these Cantonese commercial networks, but one way we can simply measure to get some rough idea of the growth is to just look at Hui uh, Guan, institution sometimes translated as guild, sometimes translated as native place association. So uh, basically, institutions that support um, commercial activities of people from a particular place doing business somewhere else. Right. So we find uh, Hui Guan supporting Cantonese commercial activities throughout Guangxi. Um, The earliest ones are established in the early 18th century. They proliferate through the 18th century and into the 19th century. Many of them are destroyed in the mid 19th century wars, um, but they're rebuilt and many other new ones are built in the late 19th century and early 20th century. So if we just look at the number of Hui Guan, um, they really proliferate across the mid 19th century. So what we really see is growing Cantonese commercial influence. We see in the late 19th century new institutions such as charitable halls, hospitals, which are closely linked to uh, these Huayguan. So, uh, Cantonese are basically organizing not only the commerce, but also charitable activities throughout the West River Basin, right? So, what I really see, uh, despite all of the changes across the mid 19th century, is a growing Chinese or Cantonese commercial influence along the West River Basin. And if we take a more global perspective, I really see uh, a rapidly expanding and powerful Cantonese diasporic formation um, rather than a declining state, or at least in tandem, perhaps, with a declining uh, Qing state.
1: Um, thank you. And also, I think, as you were explaining, um, one thing you mentioned and um, is another contribution or a big achievement I feel that this book su- successfully accomplished is not just talking about the internal migration for Cantonese moving upriver uh, to Guangxi uh, West River Basin, but also um, putting it in the global context of Cantonese migration as you were explaining how um, uh, these technological and institu- institutional uh Innovations enabled them success in this turmoil um, final decades of Qing state because what they were doing is not just internal to uh, that south southern frontier of China specifically, but it's a uh, something happening in a broader, wider global stage. Uh, so, even though we're talking about. Um, or we heard you talk about so many interesting things. May I ask, is there anything that you had not included in this book?
0: You know, there's always things that one has to not include in a book. It's one of the uh, uh, most trusting things about what we do. Um, but usually, usually in many ways, editors are right. Usually we have to leave things out and usually our books become better because we leave things out. Um, in some ways, uh, you could think of opportunity and crisis as an opportunity for me uh, to, to face the crisis of what to do with stuff that I had to leave out of upriver journeys, right? Because um, I, this was a long project that I've worked on, this, you know, this idea of uh, Cantonese migration along the West River Basin. And I just found so much and there was so much to do uh, that I felt like I couldn't put it all in one book right? Um, And especially, you know, I was just emphasizing continuities over the mid-19th century, but there were also changes as well. Uh, And the mid-century wars really do uh, mark an important turning point, and in and of themselves are major events, right? So uh, I felt like in the first book, I really didn't have space to talk about the mid-century wars, this Cantonese-led triad regime established in Guangxi. So I had to leave it out of the first book. And so Opportunity and Crisis was, uh, again, an opportunity for me uh, to uh, feature these materials that I had to leave out of uh, the first book, Upriver Journeys. Um, But there are other materials that I had to leave out, even of this book. Uh, There's this fascinating um, township right across the West River from Zhejiang, a place called Gu Lao, which uh, was actually the homeland of the most notorious riverine pirates in the 1840s and the main leaders of the triad regime in the 1850s. And this place, in many ways, before the mid-19th century, was really pretty much like Zhejiang, uh, a wealthy community. But then by the late 19th century, perhaps because of its association with river piracy and the rebel regimes, really becomes associated more with other communities on the south side of the West River communities that would be grouped as the four counties or the five counties. Um, in the context of overseas Cantonese migration, they're seen as producing overseas Chinese laborers rather than overseas Chinese merchants, right? So the typically the wealthy merchants uh, came from places like Zhejiang, north of the West River, right? So it's a community that um, in some ways is, undergoes a major transformation in the mid 19th century, at least in the way that uh, people see it, right? Um, As kind of a, a formerly successful community, not that different from Zhejiang, to a place that's kind of tainted by piracy and rebellion.
1: Okay, wow. So I hope I could have a chance to read about this riverine uh, piracy (laughs) as we are talking about uh, stuff beyond this current book. Um, And for our final question, so what are you working on now or what is your next project? Mm so... um
0: what I'd like to do is return to urban history, um, beginning with a place that's very familiar to me, and that's the city of Guangzhou or Canton. Um, And I'm interested in looking at uh, the rhythms of urban life in the 19th century. So uh, to what extent uh, do we see a seasonal aspect of urban life in a pre-industrial, pre-digital city, right? Um, And, it's In some ways, working on Guangzhou is kind of counterintuitive because you, in some ways it doesn't really have a winter, at least not in the way that cities in the north would, right? So there's not a you know, the, the frozen part of the year and the unfrozen part of the year. It's really more a wet and a dry part of the year, right? So I'm interested in uh, the annual cycle of fires and floods, for example, right? Um, the annual ritual cycle. Uh, cycles of work and play, um, cycles of um, kind of what we might think of as um, sanctioned or orthodox gatherings and unsanctioned or heterodox gatherings, and perhaps even cycles of birth, disease, and death, right? To just uh, try to get a sense of the rhythm of life in Guangzhou in particular, but more broadly in a pre industrial um, city. And I'm doing Guangzhou partly because I know it pretty well, but also because it's actually, for the 19th century, it's one of the most well-documented Chinese cities there are. Because um, at least before 1842, it was the only port open to foreign trade, and so you have a lot of descriptions of Guangzhou. Also, it was a wealthy place that I mentioned earlier that was... Um, becoming more cultured uh, in the 19th century, at least trying to, and so that results in the production of a lot of written materials. So aside from Shanghai and Beijing, uh, it's actually one of the most well-documented cities. And so uh, what I want to do is look at um, the patterns of urban life uh, to get a sense of lived experience uh, in a 19th century city.
1: That's so exciting. I think you, um, just your ex. Describing, I don't know what's the stage, but I suppose you already accumulated a lot of materials and you're describing um, cultural history, social history, environmental history. Uh, I don't know what else um, will be included, but really look forward to this rhythms of urban life um, in 19th century. 19th century? Yeah, 19th century, <laughs> yes, yes. 19th century Guangzhou. Um Okay, so um, thanks again for Steve, Dr. Stephen Miles, uh, who shared time with us about his new book, Opportunity in Crisis, Cantonese Migrants and the State in Late Qing, China, that came out with Harvard University Press in 2021. Thanks, thanks again, Steve, for your time and uh, for our audience. Thank you for listening and see you next time.
0: Thank you very much for you.